0: Of study and the Bible. This Sunday school curriculum that we began maybe about four years ago now, we are coming to the conclusion. Our last quarter theme is called Living as Christians. And this is what we're going to be looking at this quarter. These are our lessons. We first finish up the book of Acts by tracing Paul's various journeys and his missionary work on behalf of Christ. We then sample the various letters of the New Testament and some of the core teachings we see there. We then finish our study by looking at the New Testament's teaching regarding Christ's return, especially in the book of Revelation. It's fitting that our study should end with a study of the last things given by Revelation regarding the last things of history and the summing up of all things in Christ. But today we begin our study of this, for this final quarter with the first missionary journey of Paul in Acts 13 to 14. What we're really going to be looking at is the Great Commission in action. As we go through this lesson today, I want you to keep two overarching questions in mind. First, how did Paul seek to fulfill his part in the Great Commission? And then second, what is your own role in fulfilling the Great Commission? Because remember, the Great Commission Is for all of us, not just the apostles. Let's pray before we continue. Our Lord and God, we thank you that you've given us this word, that you've revealed it to us. I pray that people be encouraged, uh, inspired, emboldened, convicted, Lord, that we might be faithful to the commission you've given to us as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. And as you're turning there, let me remind you of the background and context of this chapter. Acts chapter 13. You recall not too long ago, we looked at the conversion of Saul. In Acts chapter 9, we read how Saul turned from a persecutor, in fact, the persecutor of Jesus' church, to a preacher, a zealous preacher, speaking on behalf of Christ. Paul, or Saul at this time, he went to Damascus, was converted there, then went down to Jerusalem. And then from there, he went back to Tarsus in Cilicia. Remember, Cilicia, that would be Southeast Asia Minor. And that's where last we saw him. This conversion took place probably about two years after Jesus' crucifixion. And so if Jesus was crucified around A.D. 30, then Saul's conversion would be around A.D. 32. I'll say a little bit more about timing Uh, As we go through the lesson today, but different details we have in the New Testament help us come up with some estimates as to when these things took place. Some people change the years by a, a year or two or three. And so they might say that Saul's conversion took place around AD 35, but we're going with the timeline that puts it in 32. So Saul's converted. And then in Acts chapter 10, another thing that we saw is that the gospel is given to the Gentiles and also the Holy Spirit. And where Peter has its visit with Cornelius, Cornelius and his household are saved, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them visibly, upon Gentiles who had not even received circumcision, showing that salvation is by faith to all, and not requiring ritual, ritual adherence to Jewish law. There's some other events that took place in Acts 11 and 12 that we didn't cover, but that you should know about as we go into this lesson today. For instance, in Acts 11, verse 20, some of the Jews, some of the Jewish Christians who had been scattered from Jerusalem, from Saul's persecution, they made their way to Antioch. Antioch was a city, a major city in Syria, a little bit inland from the coast. And these people were originally from Cyprus and from Cyrene. And they preached the gospel there, not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. And many Gentiles in Antioch believed and turned to the Lord. And the harvest was so great that the church of Jerusalem sent Barnabas to Antioch to lead and teach the new believers there. Sometime after arriving, Barnabas decides he wants to bring Saul into the ministry at Antioch. And he goes to Tarsus in Cilicia, finds Saul, and brings him back to Antioch. And then the two of them, Barnabas and Saul, they're teaching in Antioch for a a year. And they also bring an offering to Jerusalem to give some relief to the Christians who are suffering famine there. I say the word Christian, but it's actually in Acts 11, verse 26, that that term first appears in the Bible. We hear that Christians were first called Christians at Antioch, Antioch in Syria. By the way, Christian would mean something like uh, uh, one associated with Christ or a Christ-partisan. Someone who's on the side of Christ. So that is in Acts 11. Acts chapter 12, a few more things to know. First, James, the son of Zebedee, is martyred, the first apostle to be killed. He is put to death by the ruler in Judea uh, by the name of Herod. This would be the grandson of Herod the Great. Peter is also arrested and imprisoned. And he's about to be put to death, but God miraculously frees Peter from prison. Peter escapes, he goes to Jerusalem, and then disappears. The book of Acts doesn't tell us where he went, and we're actually not going to see Peter anymore in the book of Acts except at the Jerusalem Council. The focus is switching from Peter, and it's going to focus now on Paul. In Acts twelve twenty-five, this is right before our passage begins, Barnabas and Saul return from Jerusalem, and they bring with them another believer. A disciple named John, who is also called Mark. And this would be the Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark. Now, you may know that Barnabas and Mark have a connection. What's the connection? According to Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, Barnabas and Mark are cousins. And it mentions there that he's his cousin, so he brings his cousin back with him to Antioch with Saul, and they're there again. And that brings us to Acts chapter 13, verse 1, where... We're going to start reading so follow along with me we're just going to read the first three verses and then i'll tell you what we're going to do to break down the rest of the passage so acts 13 verses 1 to 3. now there were at antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers barnabas and simeon who was called niger and lucius of cyrene and Menaean who had been brought up with herod the tetrarch and saul well they were ministering to the lord and fasting Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away briefly. Now, observe briefly this short section. Barnabas, we first of all learn that Barnabas and Saul are not the only teachers at Antioch, not the only leaders. But as these leaders are serving the Lord and fasting, The Holy Spirit gives a command to set aside Solomon Barnabas for a special work and an urgent work. There's an interesting particle in the original Greek that is hard to translate and doesn't come through in the English translation. But this particle it conveys the idea of urgency, set aside immediately, set apart now, Solomon Barnabas for the work that I have commanded them. The leaders obey. But they fast, they pray, and they lay hands on the two men before sending them off. Now, to what work are they set apart? The rest of Acts 13 and 14 is going to tell us. And we know this special work, this special journey, as Paul's first missionary journey. Now, when's this taking place? This would be around AD 47, so some considerable time after Saul's conversion. If Saul's converted around 32, he spends three years in Arabia. And then, uh, or so that would be around uh, 35, that would bring us to around 35. He then tells us in Galatians that it was 14 years after his conversion that he goes up to Jerusalem for the Jerusalem Council. Or 14 years after um, he first went up to Jerusalem. So that'd be around A.D. 50. So this first missionary journey would have to take place before the Jerusalem Council. And indeed, maybe shortly before. So that's why uh, we would say this takes place around the mid-40s AD, even AD 47. Now we're going to trace this journey. We're going to follow Saul and Barnabas, soon to be Paul and Barnabas, as they go on this journey. But it's a lot of text. So we're not going to be able to observe everything that we could in these passages. I instead want to focus on three, uh, three specific questions. First, where do they go? Where do do Paul and Barnabas go? What do they do there, secondly? And then third, what are the results? So we're going to follow their journey, and we're going to look to answer each one of those questions as they move along. Okay? Let's start with their first stop. Acts 13, verses 4 and 5. We're going to take it section by section here. Look at the next two verses. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there, they sailed to Cyprus. When they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they also had John as their helper. Okay, so where's the team's first missions stop? It is the city of Salamis in Cyprus. Now, Cyprus, you can see on your display there. As an island, it's uh, one of the larger islands in the Mediterranean, this one in the eastern Mediterranean off the coast of Syria. Inhabited mostly by Greeks at this time, though the missionaries have a special connection to Cyprus. We learn in Acts chapter 4, verse 36, that Barnabas is actually from Cyprus. And so they come to Cyprus and they enter the city of Salamis, which is the, eastern, or which is the city on the eastern coast of Cyprus and the chief port of the island. So they go to Cyprus, they go to the city of Salamis. What do they do there? They proclaim the word of God in the Jewish synagogue. And notice John Mark also is helping them. What's the result? Well, we don't know. Nothing is said about the results here. But this is their first stop, and we see what they do. But they, the group eventually moves on, this team of three. Let's look at their next stop. Acts 13, verses 6 to 12. Follow along with me. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet, whose name was Bar Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the holy spirit fixed his gaze on him and said you who are full of all deceit and fraud you son of the devil you enemy of all righteousness will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the lord now behold the hand of the lord is upon you and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time and immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. All right, so the team, mission's team, travels through the island of Cyprus, and notice where they stop, a city called Paphos. So they're still on Cyprus, but Paphos would be the capital city of Cyprus, the city on the southwest coast, the center of administration. So the team has basically gone from one side of Cyprus to the other. Now, they may have been simply traveling, but I'm inclined to think that they've been preaching along the way since they are sent for when they come to Paphos to hear the gospel message. And who's, uh, who's sending for them? The governor, Sergius Paulus. Now, I mentioned something about him before, but you can just tell by his name. Is Paulus a Jew or a Gentile? He's clearly a Gentile. That's a Roman name. This is not a Jew. And this is the first time that we have recorded in scripture that Saul is sharing the gospel with a Gentile. And what change now occurs in the text? Dwayne. That's right. Saul, who is also called Paul. You remember me making a point about this before. He's called Paul when he starts speaking to Gentiles, Paul being a Roman name and somewhat at equivalent to Saul. And he goes by Paul for basically the rest of the book of Acts. So they come to Paphos, and Paul and Barnabas look to share the gospel with Sergius Paulus, who sent for them. But they have to deal with opposition. They have to confront Bar-Jesus, also called Elimas, a magician or sorcerer, was opposing them and trying to prevent the proconsul's belief so they're sharing the gospel with the governor but also confronting this magician and what's the result well the magician is blinded and humiliated supernaturally and sergius paulus he believes side note isn't it amazing that of all people a roman governor is eager to hear the message about Jesus and then believes it. At the beginning of the book of Acts, when these Jewish Christians were gathered in Jerusalem, could they have ever thought the Roman governor of Cyprus would want to hear the gospel and would believe it? And yet, this is exactly what happened. Now, is the trip over? Hardly. It's only just begun. Let's see the next stop for Saul or now Paul, Paul and Barnabas. And this next stop is going to require a lengthier bit of text. Look at Acts 13, verse 13 to 52. This is all going to be a description of their next stop, and we'll read about it. So starting in verse 13 now. Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Periga in Pamphylia, but John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it. For a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. When he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. After these things, they gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. After he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. From the descendants of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, after John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And while John was completing his course, He kept saying, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he, but behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brethren, sons of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God, to us, the message of this salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. When they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled this promise to our children and that he raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him from the dead, raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another Psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purposes purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Therefore, take heed so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you Behold, you scoffers and marvel and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. As Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. Now, when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Paul Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us. I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, as many had been appointed to eternal life, believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. But the Jews, the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated, instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas. And drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Alright, that was a long section, but we're just kind of break down kind of overview fashion. Where's the team's next site of ministry? It is a city known as Pisidian Antioch. Now notice that there are two Antiochs in the Bible. We have Antioch on the Syrian coast, where Paul and Barnabas started their journey, and then we have this Pisidian Antioch in the Anatolian highlands. Anatolia is another, another name for what we call Turkey today, that, that area. Antioch is in the, the highlands of Anatolia, part of an inland region known as Galatia, and you've heard of Galatia, one of the books of the Bible mentioned or named after that. Asia Minor is settled by various peoples at this time, especially Greeks on the coast in the western part of Asia Minor, but The region of Galatia, interestingly, features a large population of barbarians from central Europe who migrated into the area a few centuries before this journey from Paul and Barnabas. These Celtic barbarians were also called Gauls, hence the name of their region in which they settled, Galatia or Galatia. Over time, these Gauls became Hellenized. That is, they adopted the Greek language and Greek culture. And that's the kind of people that they are when Paul and Barnabas find them. So Pisidian Antioch, is the, Pisidian Antioch and Galatia is the next stop. Notice, though, that when Paul and Barnabas hit the, the coast of Anatolia, they lost something. They lost John Mark. He leaves. Why did, why did Mark leave? We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. It says he went back to Jerusalem, though, once they reached Perga, a major city, a little inland from the Turkey coast. As we'll see later on, though, Paul calls this leaving a desertion. So whatever Mark's reason was, Paul did not think it was a very good reason. But they go to Pisidian Antioch. And what do they do there? Notice they preach the gospel and they start in the synagogue. Now, it's kind of amazing the way it's reported in the text. They're actually invited to speak. Whatever word of exhortation they have. I mean, talk about a gospel opportunity from God. And Paul preaches a sermon. And think about the sermon. Does it remind you of anything that we've seen earlier in the book of Acts? It should sound a lot like what? What? A little bit like Stephen's sermon. yeah, for sure. Uh, Stephen was a little bit more um, confrontational. There's a lot of review of uh, Jewish history, but this is especially similar to the sermons that Peter was giving earlier in the book of Acts, like um, Acts two and Acts three and four. The message corresponds or the message is very similar, reference to the prophets, allusions to the Old Testament or quotations in the Old Testament, and the exhortation to believe the fulfillment of God's plan spoken through the prophets. They preach the gospel in the synagogues and they exhort those who believe and they're getting ready to speak again the next Sabbath in the synagogue. And what's the result of this this first uh, occasion of ministry? Well, the first Sabbath, many people believed and began following Paul and Barnabas. And they even begged the pair to speak again in the synagogue the next Sabbath. I mean, you couldn't have asked for a better outcome in terms of uh, that initial sermon. The whole city, practically, Jew and Gentile, gathers to hear the message the next Sabbath. But another result is that the Jews became jealous. And they opposed the two men and began to blaspheme, surely speaking against Christ and the gospel message spoken by Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas, in response, they condemned the unbelieving Jews. And they announced their intention to go to the Gentiles. We also hear that as a result of this second message, many Gentiles believed. But the way it's described is poignant. All who had been appointed by God believed. Those appointed by God's sovereign and merciful choice. And we're also told the word as a result began to spread through the whole region But the opposition from the Jews increased. They incited a persecution that drove Paul and Barnabas out of this city in western Galatia. And as they leave, Paul and Barnabas shake the dust off their feet. Now, what's the significance of their doing that? Who was commanded to shake the dust off his feet before? That's right. The disciples were commanded by Jesus when they were told to preach throughout Israel and um, preach the gospel of repentance and let people know that the kingdom of God was near. It says, if they don't listen to you, shake the dust off your feet. Now, that already was an allusion to a, a custom of the Jews. They disdained Gentiles so much and considered them unclean that they would literally shake the dust off their feet getting rid of the dust from their feet whenever they travel through gentile lands because they said oh we don't want to bring that unclean dirt back with us but jesus said do that for the people of israel if they won't listen to your message and now we see paul and barnabas doing it in the city of pisidian antioch specifically because the jews would not accept the continued preaching of paul and barnabas so this was a this was a message to the jews and to those who drove Paul and Barnabas out of Pisidian Antioch that they are as unclean as they ever would have suggested the Gentiles were. And they don't even want Paul and Barnabas don't even want the dust of their city on their feet. The last thing we're told regarding this particular ministry stop is that the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. And what disciples are we talking about? The new believers? new believers in Pisidian Antioch, they were filled with joy. And we understand that, right? Because when you became saved and when you see anybody else get saved, they are filled with joy. And they're also filled with the Holy Spirit. What a great experience in Pisidian Antioch. What a powerful uh, movement of the Lord. Is it time to go home? Nope, not yet. We've already seen actually in our passage the next ministry site introduced, and that's the city of Iconium. So let's read about what happens there next in Acts 14, verses 1 to 7. Verse 1 to 14. In Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both of Jews and of Greeks. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Therefore, they spent a long time there, speaking boldly, with reliance upon the Lord, who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, and some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And When an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews, with their rulers, to mistreat and to stone them, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lycaonia. Lystra and Derby, and the surrounding region. And there they continue to preach the gospel. Not as great a description, not as long a description for this ministry stop, but where are we now? We're in Iconium, another city of Galatia, this one east of where we are in Basidian Antioch, or where we were in Basidian Antioch. What do Paul and Barnabas do in this city? They preach the gospel and they start in the synagogue. It says that they spoke spoke boldly there a long time and they performed miracles. Now, how long is a long time? We don't know, but at least several months. What was the result of their ministry in this city? Many Jews and Greeks believed, but the Jews stirred up persecution among the Gentiles toward Paul and Barnabas and the city became divided. A plot even arose to stone the two missionaries. And Paul and Barnabas fled from that city, but they continued to preach. Now you may have noticed that in verse 4, it mentions in the division of the city, some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles, plural. Meaning that Paul and Barnabas are both called apostles. Now the MacArthur Study Bible has an interesting note on this detail pointing out that Barnabas does not appear to be an apostle in the same way that Paul is an apostle there are some people outside of the original twelve and Paul who are sometimes called apostles in the Bible but that the the office of apostle as occupied by the by the by the twelve and by Paul was a very special one you had to be officially commissioned by the Lord himself you had to see and be taught by the Lord it wasn't something that everybody could just claim to claim to be a part of. But the word apostle just means a sent one or a messenger. So probably in this instance, Barnabas is being called an apostle is not to say that he was equal to the original 12 or Paul, but that he was a sent messenger of the gospel like Paul was. By the way, are you noticing a pattern in the method and experience of Paul and Barnabas as they go to these different cities? We'll come back and say something about that later on, but you should be noticing a pattern. Now, verse 7 mentions generally what Paul and Barnabas do next in terms of where they go and what they do. But the next verses in the book of chapter 14, they're going to give us more detail. Let's look now at verses 8 to 20 and look at the first city that they end up fleeing to. Acts 14 verses 8 to 20. At Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet lame from his mother's womb, and who had, or who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who, when he had fixed his gaze on him and seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he leapt up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Lycaonian language, The gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness and that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even saying these things with difficulty, they restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. The next day, he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. Where are we now? Another city of Galatia called Lystra. This one would be south of Iconium, and you can see it on the screen. What do Paul and Barnabas do here? Notice they don't go to the synagogue. In fact, there may not have been a synagogue in that city. But they perform a notable miracle. They heal a lame man. They also try to prevent sacrifice, and they end up preaching the gospel. Now what do you notice is different about the gospel message presented here Versus the message we heard in Pisidian Antioch. What's different about the content or the presentation of this message? Uh, Yes. True. Okay, right. So there's... Um, not going, the, or not not summarizing the Old Testament, not not rehearsing what God did with the Jews. Uh, Dwayne, what were you going to add? Right. Very good. So you can see the focus here is on God as creator, God as the uh, Lord of the earth, the sustainer, the provider. Um, uh, Right. Yeah. Uh, Roy, what are you going to say? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. So going back to the city that phrase you who fear God is a is a reference to gentile god-fearers. But here in in 14 verses 8 to 20, we are speaking to, or you may have already inferred that we, are, we have a slightly different audience, though Gentiles were included even in the synagogue, those were those who had been attending the synagogue, or at least many of them, along with the Jews. But these, this is not a very Jewish audience. In fact, there might not have been hardly any Jews in the audience. And there is a different a different kind of presentation focusing more on God as creator and God as the one who's providing them good in their lives. And what's the result of this miracle and this, uh, this presentation to the people, the Gentiles in Lystra? Well, the people get really excited and they think that Paul and Barnabas are their gods, that Barnabas is Zeus and Paul is Hermes. Now, we've heard these names before. Zeus is the chief god of the Greek pantheon. But who's Hermes? The messenger god, in, according to Greek mythology. And they felt that was appropriate for Paul since he was the main speaker. They want to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. Now, this is actually pretty silly, right? I mean, these are not gods, but they're ready to offer sacrifice to them. But even though it's kind of silly, it's also really sad because they actually believe this. They believe these are their gods. They're ready to honor them as gods with sacrifice. They believe this to be right. They are so blind. And when Paul and Barnabas realize what's happening, they tear their clothes. And they try to preach a message to them to get these people to understand this is all wrong. And God is giving you an opportunity to turn away from these vain things. Now, were any saved as a result of this message here in Lystra? Well, some were, because there are disciples mentioned in verse 20. Moreover, in Acts 16, we learn that Timothy and his family were living in Lystra and that Timothy became a disciple, though he does not join, uh, doesn't follow Paul at this time. Paul will later pick up Timothy as a uh, a helper in his second missionary journey. So there were Gentiles who were saved as a result of this message. But Jews from Antioch and Iconium, they actually travel all the way to Lystra and they turned the crowds against Paul and Barnabas. So that the people who had just lauded these two men as their gods. Then turned against them, stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city and thought that Paul was dead. Now that's a pretty quick change in public regard. Did Paul actually die? It doesn't appear to be so. The text doesn't mention that he died. Moreover, when Paul rehearses his sufferings for the gospel later on in other books, He never mentions that he was killed, though he does mention that he was stoned. It appears that God simply preserved Paul, even though he endured a vicious experience. God preserved Paul so that Paul did not die. I'm sure it was very painful. Notice, though, Paul gets up, and he doesn't immediately leave the city. He actually goes back in. And the group leaves the next day. Before we move on, does this experience in Lystra remind you of anything we've already seen in the book of Acts? Yeah, Rob. Right, that's true. Um, you're, you're thinking of how the apostles were all imprisoned, and then they were miraculously freed by the Lord, and they go right back into the temple and start preaching, much the Sanhedrin's uh, uh being stunned. Though there's something else that's worth pointing out. We have this same kind of sequence happening earlier in the book of Acts with Peter and John. In Acts chapter 3, they miraculously heal a lame man. There's misplaced excitement about their healing. There's a correction applied by Peter and John as to what the crowd should be understanding, and there is a opportunity taken to declare the gospel. Also, in both instances, both pairs end up being persecuted, even though they win over converts. What's the main difference between these two instances, though? Audience. In Acts chapter 3, it was the Jews. But here, it's the Gentiles. Yet the same things are happening. Now, where to next? The text is going to mention a short, uh, it's going to mention briefly one other stop. In verses 20 to 21, I'll just start in the second part of verse 20. It says, the next day, he went with Barnabas to Derbe, after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples. They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. So one more city in Galatia to mention, and that's Derbe. This is further east in Galatia. And what did the apostles do there? They preached the gospel. And what's the result? they made many disciples. Notice there's no specific mention of persecution or opposition in this city. There still could have been some, but it is significant that Luke doesn't mention anything. I'm inclined to think that the opposition was not as significant as in the previous cities or else it would have been mentioned. Well, now it's time for, the, uh, for Paul and Barnabas to head home, but they do so with a purpose. Let's read about their return trip all at once. Verses 21 to 28, we'll see how they make their way back to Antioch and Syria. Starting in the second half of verse 21. They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. They passed through Presidia and came into Pamphylia. When they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Adelia. From there, they sailed to Antioch, from which they had been commended commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. When they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. They spent a long time with the disciples. So where do the, the, the uh, Paul and Barnabas go uh, to make their way back to Syria and Antioch? They actually go back through the cities that they traveled to in Asia Minor. Now, this is a significant choice for at least two reasons. One, it's the long way home. In Derby, they could have just taken the eastern road that would have eventually brought them back to Antioch in Syria, about a 200-mile journey they could have even swung by tarsus paul's hometown in cilicia but they don't do that they instead choose to double back and take the 700 mile trip to perga adalia and then over the sea so they take the long way and also they just it's also significant that they choose to go back this way because these are the very cities in which they were violently persecuted they go back there's they don't go back though to Cyprus they don't travel back to the island and what do Paul and Barnabas do as they travel back through these cities they strengthen and encourage the new disciples they especially exhort them to persevere through tribulation and Paul and Barnabas know a thing or two about that they appointed elders no elders plural they appointed elders in every church in every city they fasted, they prayed, they commended the believers to Jesus Christ. They also spoke the word in Perga, which is interesting because it doesn't seem like they did it the first time around, but they do it on their way back. And then they traveled to their home city, Antioch, and reported all that God had done among the Gentiles, what they described as opening a door of faith. And what's the result of this? Not stated explicitly, but we can infer. These new Christian communities, these new churches... These local assemblies of believers they were strengthened, given leadership, and were encouraged. And certainly, the church in Syria and Antioch was encouraged to hear that all God, all that God had done. So, this is Paul's and Barnabas's first missionary journey. Let's collect now our observations and bring up some interpretation questions. First, which regions? In sum, make up Paul's first missionary journey. Asia Minor, but what part of Asia Minor? The region known as Galatia. And we can summarize the first missionary journey was basically to Cyprus, pamphylia that would be southern, south-central Asia Minor, and Galatia. And we want to kind of note this to... Uh, compare and contrast it to where he goes in the other missionary journeys. But this one was basically to Cyprus and Galatia. How long was this missions trip? Well, we can't say for sure, but it must have been long. Remember that travel at this time in the ancient world, though it was better than usual because of the Pax Romana, that is the peace and order and security established by the Roman Empire, it still took a long time. You traveled by boat, by animal, or by foot. So going from city to city, especially if it was overland, it took days, if not weeks, to get there. And then, as Paul and Barnabas traveled to these different cities, they would spend a considerable amount of time in each one. The total travel distance that these missionaries endured was probably around 1,300 to 1,500 miles by land and by sea. It's not unreasonable to expect that this whole trip, travel time and ministry time put together, probably took about two years. Two years of continual ministry. That is quite an investment of time, energy, and endurance from Paul and Barnabas. And it might have been part of the reason why John Mark left. He didn't sign up for something quite so arduous. So why'd they do it? Why uh, spend all that blood, sweat, and tears? Why make the sacrifice? It has to be Because they wanted to glorify Christ. Certainly they had to be obedient to God's spirit, which said, hey, I've set you apart to a ministry. They had a duty to go. But they also wanted to go. They wanted to be faithful as stewards of what was given to them. Not only as Christians, but also as those equipped to teach. They wanted to see Gentiles rescued from their vain way of life that was going to lead to their destruction. And they... They did it because they knew it was all worth it. You know, Paul, in his letters, he speaks more at length about why gospel ministry is so wonderful and a privilege. He says in 1 Timothy 1, verses 12 to 13, you remember, we've talked about these verses lately. Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 11 to 15, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 11 to 15, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God. And I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us, so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all so that they might live, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, sorry, they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. There's more there, but we'll just stop what Paul says there. You can see that Paul saw great commission ministry as the natural outcome of Christ saving him. And really the natural outcome of Christ saving any believer. Any believer, once he's saved, once he's encountered Christ, he should want to see others saved, to see Christ exalted. It's for God's glory and for others' eternal good This is what motivated them to go. And what was the result of their ministry? Some believed. New churches were established in these various cities of Cyprus and Asia Minor. But there was also opposition and persecution. Now, how many people believed? We see many times in the text, it says many believed. But many is a relative term. No specific numbers are mentioned, unlike maybe earlier in the book of Acts. Excuse me a second. We do see some details, maybe give us a little bit of an idea. The disciples in Lystra were apparently small enough, the number was small enough, that they could gather around Paul after he had been stoned. On the other hand, the word is said to have spread from Pisidia to the whole region. So how many people are we talking about? My guess, and this is not inspired, this is just my estimate, there were definitely scores saved, probably a couple hundred, maybe one to two thousand. It's hard to say. But no matter the specific number, it was an amazing and gracious work of God to many. Many who were previously, whether Jew or Gentile, utterly lost without Christ. And what was Paul and Barnabas' general method to bringing the gospel to a certain area? I think we saw it, right? They start in the synagogue, if there is one. They preach there until Jewish opposition becomes too great. Then they depart and preach to the Gentiles. And they stay in the city until it's too dangerous to stay there anymore. Or they often stay until it's too dangerous to stay, and then they leave. Now, why start with the Jews? Yeah, Dwayne. Yeah, that's a good, good, um, good answer, Dwayne. We certainly see that it corresponds to a theological pattern, as, um, as really demonstrated by Christ and throughout the Book of Acts, that the gospel is given first to the Jews as God's chosen people, as the ones who had have been originally given the oracles of God, and then it is given to the Gentiles. But there is a practical reason for this too. If the apostles started with the Gentiles, the Jews would never listen. But they had an opportunity with the Jews because they were Jews themselves. They could go to the synagogues. So they start there. Now, once, once that opportunity had been used, once the Jews had either believed or rejected, then they turned to the Gentiles. But both, both are given the message because both become equal heirs in God's salvation by faith. Now, do note do you know that really what their missions trip was all about was preaching the gospel? I mean, we see it over and over and again in the text, right? It's not the only thing they do. They do also do some miracles. But the far and away priority of the, of the missionaries of Paul and Barnabas is to preach the gospel. And this is instructive for us, especially as there's a greater and greater movement today in missions to do social work. Not Paul and Barnabas going to a certain city and just being do-gooders. No, they are preaching the gospel. Now, how did their approach, in terms of preaching the gospel, how did it change based on the audience? We noted this. To To the Jews, they started with the Old Testament. They showed the promises of the prophets fulfilled in Christ. To the Gentiles, they started with creation. And they talked about God's provision still evident in the world. But both of these approaches end up going to the same place. An exhortation to repentance from sin and the vanity of idolatry and a return to God through Christ. We're going to see this more as we continue to study the book of Acts. Now what does this missionary journey show us? First of all, what does it show us about God? uh, We're running a little bit short on time so I'll, I'll, I'll answer these myself. We see that if God is the one who's opened this door, then it is his power at work. God is powerful to save. I mean, think about it. How could any of these people have turned otherwise? This governor of Cyprus, these barbarians, these Hellenized barbarians in Galatia. Why would they ever believe? It's because God is powerful to save. Also, see that God is so merciful, generous, gracious. What love to send out these apostles and cause The message should be brought to those who are in darkness. That is God's love. And we see that God is faithful, providing for Paul and Barnabas, even through uh, many days of hard ministry. We see also this missionary missionary journey shows us something about missions and about declaring the gospel. It's costly. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes pain. It takes exposure to danger. It requires prayer. Notice the praying and fasting that goes on in the text. It's going to be opposed, even irrationally, because of the darkness hates the light. But it's also possible. The Lord provides. It it does have an effect. And it's worth it. Consider the new life, the joy, the amazement brought about in these Gentile converts as they behold Christ. Gentile and Jew converts. This missionary journey also shows us something about Gentile inclusion in the church. It shows us, basically, that Gentiles are included. They really are a part of Christ's church. They do genuinely belong. I mean, consider God's Spirit commanded the journey. God's Spirit blessed the ministry. God's Spirit validated the ministry with signs and wonders. And validated the person, Paul, who ends up just being like, or who ends up being just like Peter. And even just like Christ. There is a pattern in the book of Acts. We first see that Peter, and and John too, Peter ends up doing many of the same things that Jesus was doing, confirming Peter as an apostle of Christ. But then we see Paul doing many of the same things that Peter was doing. There's, There's almost like a parallel in terms of what Luke reports to us, and this is all for a purpose, to show that Paul and Peter are true apostles of Christ, both Uh, Both of those men were faithful proclaimers of Christ's gospel. And as Paul is a missionary to the Gentiles and a proclaimer of gospel to the Gentiles, his message is true. It's not an aberration that he just came up with, because this is what the Judaizers and others would say. Oh, he came up with this thing by himself. Gentiles are not really included. They have to become Jews. Luke shows us, no, Paul is a true apostle. Paul's message is the true gospel. Therefore, Gentiles truly do belong in Christ's church. And we're going to see this underscored, of course, in the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. So what we've seen today is God's first gracious Gentile harvest using his chosen instrument, the Apostle Paul. We've seen a few Gentiles saved before this, but nothing like this before. A wide door open to the Gentiles. Now, this is not the only time Paul is going to go out on a journey like this. Next time, we'll look at the second missionary journey and the first foray of Paul into Europe. But we need to consider application as we close. Oh, really short on time. But I'll mention just a few things to you, a couple questions to consider. First, when we do evangelism and missions, should we do exactly what Paul did? Well, yes and no. Certainly Paul is an example to us boldness, his compassion, his his priority of proclaiming the gospel, his faith, his perseverance, but we need not do everything that he did exactly. Let us remember that the book of Acts is a history, and therefore it is descriptive and not always prescriptive. It's not necessarily true that each of us should go into a synagogue first when we're preaching the gospel in a certain city, but that was an application of what valid gospel ministry looks like. Paul's a great example to us, but we're not necessarily going to follow everything that he did exactly. We do see general principles, though, exemplified by Paul and Barnabas. Another question, do you actually believe that you will see both responses that Paul and Barnabas did in your own witness? Because I think so often we expect one and not the other. Oh, I'm going to be opposed, but no one's going to believe. Or oh, everyone's going to believe, and I won't be opposed. When we think only one and the other, we often get discouraged. When we uh, we often get discouraged. But we need to expect both, because it is the power of God, not our own power, that brings about salvation and that causes the opposition from the darkness that hates the light. So, do you actually believe that? Do you believe that God can actually use you to save people, but that there will be opposition? And then finally, Paul and Barnabas pursued gospel work far from their own country and far from even their home church, because they saw a great need among the Gentiles and they saw that they were equipped to help them. So what about you? What about each of you at Calvary? Are you concerned with the salvation of people, even far off people? It is good for you to be concerned about the salvation of your friends, your family, your co-workers. But what about the world? Our commission was to go into all the world. There are people in deep darkness, great need, hungry for the gospel. What are you doing to help the gospel get to them? Might you be one to go to them? Would you love Christ and the lost in that way? All of us have special roles to fulfill when it comes to the Great Commission. What is yours? How has God specially prepared, fitted, and equipped you? And how are you using what God gave you to see the world saved? Will you go? Will you faithfully support and pray for those who go? Will you give so that others can go? Will you encourage and instruct and equip men and women so that they can go? Don't give up this eternally profitable privilege and joy to serve Christ due to lack of faith. What is your role in seeing the Great Commission fulfilled? Remember, it's not really about you. It's about the power of God in you to save even unexpectedly to his glory. Well, that's it for this week. If you have other comments or questions, you can email me afterwards. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you for opening a door to the Gentiles. Lord, that all people, if they believe in your wonderful son, Jesus Christ, they will be saved. God, I pray that you'd fill us, fill the people with a love, with a conviction, with a joy that just wants to see others freed from darkness, wants to see you glorified. God, you were so loving and generous. It is your desire to see people saved. You love to see people saved. I pray that that would be the same thing in each one of our hearts. I pray that you equip us for this, God. We know that in ourselves, we are not able to do this, but you are able and you give us the ability. Lord, help us to believe you, to to be faithful, to walk by faith. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Thank you. Well, I'll see, you, or it might not be next week. So I'm not sure if we're having some new school for Easter, but I will see you again soon.